Well, good morning. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21, that's where we will be beginning this morning. We have a rather large passage that we're going to be going through, and in the spirit of the Olympics, uh, if, the, if our study in the book of Acts feels like it's been a marathon, this morning is more like the 100 meter dash. Not in that it's going to last less than 10 seconds, but that we're going to be moving quickly through our passage. Uh, earlier this week on Friday, I had the privilege of being one of the officiants of a funeral here for Liz Forrester's father, Brigadier General Julius Braun. And as I read General Braun's obituary, uh, which was just laden with award after award after award from the military, it got me curious to study the various citations that the military gives out. And the Medal of Honor is the United States of America's highest military citation. It's awarded to individuals who display a unique um, individual courage and personal valor. They go far beyond the call of duty. And they've only been given out to roughly 3,500 individuals since its inception in 1861. And the latest person to receive one was Lieutenant Colonel Charles Kettles. And Kettles actually has some San Antonio connections. He was stationed at Fort Sam. He graduated from Our Lady of the Lake University. And he lived in San Antonio until he retired from the military in 1978. And Kettles fought in the Vietnam War as a UH-1 helicopter commander. And on May 15, 1967, he volunteered to lead a platoon to bring reinforcements to a brigade cornered by North Vietnamese troops in Duc Pho, Vietnam. After making several trips to the landing zone while taking fire to evacuate wounded U.S. soldiers, he then returned later that day to rescue 40 soldiers and four of his crew who were stranded after their helicopter had been destroyed by enemy attack. As President Obama presented the medal to him, he said that the scene read like it was something out of a bad Rambo movie. And when Kettles was asked about the incredible bravery and heroism that he showed on that day, he responded by saying, it was a team effort. We were well trained. We followed our orders. And we accomplished our mission. We accomplished our mission. Roughly 19 centuries before Kettles and his team embarked on that fateful mission in Vietnam, the Apostle Paul was on quite a dangerous mission himself. A mission that involved a team of faithful believers committed to following the orders of their advisor, their captain, their general, Jesus Christ. And as they went out on a mission with one primary objective, which was to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's what they've been doing throughout the book of Acts. And as Roger talked about and hit upon last week, we've now really entered the final section of the book of Acts, which basically runs from about Acts chapter 20 to Acts chapter 28. And this final section is defined by Paul seeking to go to two final destinations. There's two places that are on Paul's heart, and the last nine chapters are going to detail his desire and his journey to get to those two places. And the first one is Jerusalem, and the second one is Rome. So Paul first desires to get back to Jerusalem. 
And he desires to get to Jerusalem because he wants to be there for Passover. He wants to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. He also wants to check in on the church in Jerusalem and see how they're doing. And lastly, he wants to bring an offering. A love offering from the various Gentile churches throughout Asia and Asia Minor that Paul has planted and helped pastor. And so he's collected an offering to bring to the struggling Jerusalem church a Gentile offering sent to bless the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And Paul desperately wants to get to Jerusalem to deliver that. And this journey really begins in earnest in Acts chapter 21. And in the first seven verses, what Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, does is he kind of shows how Paul's journey begins. And Paul's kind of ping-ponging back and forth from different ports and different spots, staying with believers in that area, and then taking off once again. And this brings us to verse 8, where Paul arrives at a familiar place and sees a familiar face. Verse 8 says this, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, if you recall, Philip is not a new character. This is somebody we met earlier in the book of Acts in chapter 6. He's one of the, the seven men who were appointed by the apostles to specifically care for the Jewish Greek widows who were feeling neglected by the early church. And so they appoint Philip to go. Philip the evangelist. He's the only person mentioned in the scriptures with the title of evangelist in the New Testament. An evangelist he was. And we see this also in the book of Acts because the Lord gave him a mighty ministry in the early church. As he preached the gospel and he witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch who was saved. And he subsequently baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And God sent him to preach the gospel to the hated Samaritans who thus responded with great repentance and faith. And so here he is 20 years after that, 20 years later, receiving the Apostle Paul into his home in Caesarea, a town roughly 40 miles from Paul's destination of Jerusalem. And here's what happens, starting in verse 9. It says, Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. And said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. So Paul arrives in Caesarea. He's staying with Philip. And during his stay, a prophet comes named Agabus. And Agabus receives a a vision from the Holy Spirit, and he makes a prophecy. And he takes Paul's belt, he ties himself up, which is what prophets often did. They acted out their prophecy. And he says, Paul, this is going to happen to you. And the people in the house, Dr. Luke and the other guys with Paul and the local residents in the city say, they they come to a conclusion that's pretty simple, and they say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. It's too dangerous. Something's going to happen to you there, Paul. The best thing is for you to stay put. And Paul responds by saying, Guys, what are you doing? What are you saying? You know this is my mission. You know this is God's calling on my life. 
You see, Paul knows the danger that awaits him in Jerusalem. He's well aware of that. And he doesn't know exactly what the future holds, but he knows who holds his future, and so he trusts in his sovereign God. And he trusts and obey. And he goes to Jerusalem. And so he arrives in Jerusalem. And he meets, at the early, he meets with the early church there. He meets with the church there. He meets with the leaders. He meets with James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he tells them about all the things the Lord has been doing throughout Asia and Asia Minor during the ministry. And these elders and James, they hear, God, they hear Paul's explanation of what's going on. And verse 20 says this. It says, when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Notice that there's no jealousy here. No competition. They're not upset that the Lord has blessed Paul's ministry. They're not comparing sizes of churches. They're not looking at who has the bigger budget. They're not looking at who's building the bigger building. They are celebrating God's faithfulness in Paul's ministry and saying, praise God that God is doing those things where you've been, Paul. Praise God. And then they tell Paul, things haven't been too shabby here in Jerusalem either. It says, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So Paul tells them, hey, the Lord's moving, and they celebrate. And then they tell Paul, hey, the Lord's moving here in Jerusalem too, and they celebrate. And they are praising God. But then they come to verse 21, and things get a little bit more complicated. James is speaking to Paul, and this is what he says. And they, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So James looks at Paul. And he says, Paul, we've got a problem, man. We've got a problem. And the problem, Paul, is these Jewish believers, they love Jesus. They're all in with Jesus. But they also love their culture. They love their customs. They love their traditions. And Paul, people have come in there and they have told them that you are a sellout. You're a sellout. You have turned your back on what it is to be a Jew. They have told, they've been told that you are anti-law, you are anti-Moses, you are anti-Jew. You are a sellout. Now it's important to recognize these allegations were not true. They're not true. Paul did not teach that the customs of the Jews were evil, just that they were unnecessary for salvation. Paul is not anti-law. Paul is not anti-Jew. Paul is not anti-customs. We know that. Paul took a vow during his travels in his third missionary journey. Paul had Timothy circumcised. Paul is a good Jew. Paul is just clear that these things fail to produce a righteousness before a holy God. That they don't make you right with God. These things are fine, but they cannot save you. They are not necessary, and they are certainly not essential for non-Jews. That was Paul's stance. That was his message. 
But the problem remains because perception matters. Perception matters. And the issue is not just what is true, but rather what can be proved. And so James and the fellow elders, they concoct a plan to show the people in Jerusalem and to show the Jewish believers that Paul is a true Jew. He's one of them. And this is what they tell him, starting in verse 23. He says, Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. I want you to picture this, okay? This is a fascinating scene. Paul, the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. The greatest theologian the church has ever seen. He's on one side of the table. And on the other side of the table is James, the half-brother of Jesus. The senior pastor, the, the presiding elder at the church in Jerusalem. Two absolute, uber-credentialed, bona fide heavyweights in the faith. And James looks at Paul and he says, Paul, I need you to go out there and I need you to publicly show your commitment to your brothers, your Jewish heritage and culture. And I want, we need you to go out there and carry the flag and go through the customs and go through the purification process and pay for these four gentlemen so that they can have their vows done and that will show everybody that you are a, Jew, a true Jew. And James is clear that, hey, nothing's changing in regards to the Gentiles. Nothing's changing in regards to salvation. We just need you to carry the flag. Will you do it, Paul? And the question then becomes, well, what should Paul do? What should he do? Should he follow through with the request and submit to James and the elders there in Jerusalem and go through this process that they've asked him to do? Or should he respond by saying, hey, James, time out. I've spent the last 20 years of my life preaching a gospel of grace. 20 years saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He goes, I just got done writing the book of Romans. I think it's going to be a big deal. You're going to want to hold on to that one. <laughs> and in Romans, I talk about how we have died to the law. And we are now under grace. Hey James, I wrote to the Galatians. The churches I planted there. And I told them, you walk by the Spirit. And not by the flesh. And you are have freedom in Christ. Should Paul just say, I will not pander to you or pander to these Jews who have a problem with me? I mean, what should Paul do? Well, whatever you think he should have done, verse 26 tells us what he did. And what he did was submit. He submits to James and the leaders, and he does what they asked. Verse 26 says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion 
of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Some scholars and theologians and commentators, you can go read commentaries, and they will say, Paul messed up here. And maybe that's what some of you are thinking. Maybe some of you are thinking, Paul messed up. Paul just drifted towards legalism right here. He drifted towards legalism and he forsook his convictions of freedom in Christ. But we know better than that. One thing Paul did not struggle with was living according to his convictions. Amen? It's the same Paul who stood up to Peter. Paul knows what it's like to live according to his convictions. But I submit to you, I actually think that Paul went about this request gladly. I actually don't think it was even that hard of a conversation. Because you see, Paul understood something so profound and so important, and yet it's something that so many of us miss. And the great theologian F.F. Bruce, I think, summed it up well with these words. Bruce writes, A truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation." A truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. In other words, Paul knows he has complete freedom in Christ, but the goal of one's life is not to flaunt one's freedom. It's to point others and to bring glory to Christ. It's to live to righteousness. It's to point people to Jesus and it's to remove barriers of belief. Paul's maturity is displayed by his humility. And he knows his freedom is less important than the church's unity. And he knows that nothing about the gospel is being taught wrongly here. This doesn't go against any major doctrine. And so Paul humbly submits and agrees to their request. And while the humility of Paul here may seem incredible, he's really just walking in the footsteps of of his Savior, isn't he? Think about it. Who is free to do as he pleases? God. God is free to do as he pleases. But what did God choose to do with his freedom? And what does that mean for Paul? And what does that mean for you and I this morning? I think Philippians 2 gives us a snapshot into that idea and into this question. Listen to these words to the church in Philippi. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you understand that? That God was free to do anything, but what he chose to do changed everything. Changed everything. And in doing so, Jesus not only provides the power 
in which we are to live, but he provides the pattern by which we are to live. He provides both the power and the pattern by which we are to live. A pattern of selflessness, humility, and love. And at the end of the day, the, the real question for all of us who gather on Sunday morning as the body of Christ is not, what am I entitled to? But rather, who am I created for? It's not, what am I entitled to? It's who and what am I created for? And Paul gets it. He gets it. So he agrees to go through with this. And yet, despite all of that, the plan does not work. It doesn't work. And in verses 27 through 36, we see this. Paul heads to the temple. People recognize him there. They start hurling false insults at him that, like he's brought a Gentile into the temple. And then a riot ensues. They gather and a riot ensues and they look to kill. And this riot catches the attention of the Roman soldiers, the Roman guards who were up at the fort nearby overseeing the temple grounds. And they see this, this riot ensuing. And so they, they get word out and they head on over to the temple. And they arrive not to save Paul per se, but because one thing we know about the Romans is they disliked disorder. They liked order. And so they want to squash this uprising. And the soldiers come rushing in, and the Jews see them, and they hands off Paul. Okay, okay, he's all yours. And the soldiers grab him, and they start taking him to the barracks at the Roman fort nearby. And we pick up now in verse 37. It says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, the commander, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now this can be a little bit confusing, so let me give you a quick context. The Roman soldiers expect this guy to be an uneducated rebel. Paul then responds to him in Greek. So he's clearly educated. And they assume that Paul hails from Egypt. And the ancient historian Josephus told us that there was a revolutionary who came in from Egypt and basically led a terrorist attack in Jerusalem that was squashed. And this guy led the attack, but he escaped. And so the Roman soldiers now think he is that guy. And so they ask him a question, assuming the response is yes. And Paul responds, no, let me tell you who I am, starting in verse 39. Paul responds, I am a Jew of Tarsus. In Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. So Paul uses Greek to speak to the soldiers. They allow him to now speak to the Jews there because they probably think, hey, they're mistaken like we were. So let him explain himself. So then Paul turns to his people. He turns to the Jews and he speaks to them in the Hebrew dialect of the day, which was Aramaic. And he speaks to them and he gives them his personal testimony. 
When push comes to shove, as we get towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul's defense is not one of logic. And friends, it's not even one of scripture. He gets up there and he says, let me tell you about my life. My life. And at the beginning of chapter 22, which is Paul's defense, he basically gets up there and he says, guys, I'm a Jew just like you. I was born in Tarsus. But I was trained in Jerusalem under the great Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the time. I was zealous for the law. I was a persecutor of the church. I stood where you stand. I thought what you're thinking, and I hated what you hate. But then he pivots. And starting in verse 6, he says, but something happened to me. Something happened. And he describes for them his Damascus Road conversion and how Jesus not only saved him, but also set him apart for ministry. Paul looks at them and he says, guys, this is who I was. This is what happened to me. And this is who I am now. And this is why I am who I am. This is why I say what I say and why I do what I do. And as I was reflecting upon this defense by Paul, it reminded me of the power of a personal testimony. A personal testimony. And you see, at the end of the day, when it comes to our unbelieving family and friends and co-workers, the reality is that they will often reject revelation. They will often deny the Lord's deity. They will disagree with data. But one thing that they cannot reject is the reality of a changed life. The reality of a changed life. People can reject your explanation, but they cannot ignore your transformation. They can reject your explanation, but they cannot ignore your transformation because it is undeniable. And it is my opinion that our world has a much greater need. It's not as desperate for logical arguments as it is for radical love and obedience. It's not as desperate for logical arguments as it is for radical love and obedience. A life well lived is the greatest story we can tell and the greatest apologetic we can have because it's undeniable. It's undeniable. I was fortunate enough to have an amazing conversation this week. We had one of our missionaries in town, a woman by the name of Janet Morgan. And Janet Morgan was sent out by Wayside in 1978 on a three-year mission. And 37 years later, we're still sending her out on a 37-year mission and still going. And as we sat in my office and we chatted about her life, I was blown away by the power of her story. The power of her testimony. The power of God's work in her life. Her life is a picture worth a thousand words. But her life is also a picture that gives her a place to speak a thousand words. And point those to Christ who are in desperate need. We have an incredible mission partner in Guatemala called the Potter's House. Many of you may have been. And the Potter's House ministers to kids who try to survive and help their families by scavenging the largest trash dump in Central America. 
And many in the nation of Guatemala could care less if those people just disappeared. Nobody would care. But the potter's house moved into the dump and they said, no, no. Those kids are not trash. Those kids are treasures. They are treasures before our God. And many of these folks at the potter's house have devoted their lives to loving, equipping, and sharing God's love with those kids and those families. Do you know how powerful that is? To that local community and to that country to see that? It's not a logical argument. It's radical love stemming from God. And this is not a space reserved for super saints. This is the Christian life. This is what Christians do. And you don't have to go across the world to do it. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had 20 young adults who said, we want to serve somewhere in the city. And some of them had connections to a homeless ministry downtown. And so they gathered together and they cooked spaghetti for 200 homeless folks. And we went down there by the church under the bridge and we served these folks and told them of God's love and tried to serve them tangibly. We partnered with Colonial Hills a mile away, a partnership we've had for nine years in a public school where we try to care for their faculty and care for their staff and care for the kids there. I was over there this past week meeting with their principal and them just speaking of, I, I can't believe you guys do this. Why? Because God's love has transformed us. It's transformed us. And the world may look at that and say, that's not normal. And we say, exactly. Exactly. That's the point. Neither is our God. He's not normal. He's marvelous. And He's majestic. And He is worth everything. And we speak from that place of love. We are to be people who know our story. And know how it fits in God's grand redemptive story. Each one of us. And we are to be people who can tell our story and know how it connects to God's grand story of redemption. Each one of us. And then we are to be people who live our story and in doing so display the radical love of God. And you don't need a PhD or a seminary degree to do that. You just need a willing heart and openness to be used however God sees fit. So Paul shares his heart, a powerful and personal speech, and yet he does not win them over, does he? And when he says in verse 21 that he also was sent to preach to the Gentiles, this is more than they could bear. And we see the response in verse 22. It says, they listened to him up to the statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out, throwing off their cloaks, they tossed dust into the air. Paul speaks from the heart. They respond with hate. They absolutely hate him. He is Benedict Arnold to them. He is an tr absolute traitor. For those of y'all who enjoy basketball, I remember when LeBron James left the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2010 and quote-unquote took his talents to South Beach to play basketball for the Miami Heat. 
And I remember people here in San Antonio were kind of like, hey, man, that's kind of messed up that LeBron would do Cleveland like that. That's kind of messed up. But that's really it. And then we went to bed and didn't lose any sleep over it. Now, people in Cleveland, on the other hand, they went ballistic. They gathered together all around the city and had bonfires where they burned his jerseys and burned pictures of him. They flipped cars. They threatened him. They disowned him. They went bona fide nuts because he was one of them. He was a homegrown kid from Akron, Ohio, who had left and said, I'm going somewhere else. And they couldn't deal with it. And when you think of Paul, Paul was one of them. Raised in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, a Pharisee. But he took his talents elsewhere. And they want him dead. They want him dead. I rarely engage in meaningful debate on social media. Because it's nearly impossible, right? But a couple of weeks ago, I made a post that was somewhat provocative. But it was something that I wanted to say and enter into, and so I posted it. And I wasn't looking to start a debate necessarily, but rather just make a a point. But of course, it turned into a conversation involving lots of people making lots of points. But one of the comments I received was from a young lady that I used to teach back at O'Connor High School. A sweet girl who would always come into my classroom, and she would look at me and she would say, Coach, you're my favorite teacher. You're my favorite teacher. And this girl sent me a message after my post, and she absolutely lit into me. Just ripped me to shreds. Basically told me I was scum, that she had zero respect for me. And as I read her message, I honestly, I was just sad. I was just sad by the whole deal. She hated me so much. And what I stood for and and who I stand for is something that she is in complete opposition to. And in the twinkling of an eye, I went from one of her heroes to public enemy number one. And I don't want to be melodramatic and act like this was some intense form of persecution. But what it was, was a reminder that people will hate you. And they will hate me because of our allegiance to Jesus And we shouldn't give people unnecessary reasons to hate us. And we shouldn't go out like a missile looking to build kind of our hate resume or anything like that. But we also shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 15 where he says, "This This I command you that you love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Then he goes on, he says, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. And because of this, the world hates you. Paul is there standing in front of his countrymen, his fellow Jews. And friends, Paul loves them. If you don't believe me, go read Romans 9. In Romans 9, Paul says, if I could go to hell and they would be saved, I'd do it. If I could be cursed by God, but my people would be saved, I'd be all in. Paul loves them. And he's sharing his heart before them, and they hate him. 
and they want to kill him. And the Roman guards see this taking place, and they're like, "Uh uh-oh. And so they grab Paul. They finally remove him from the chaos. They take him to the fort nearby, and they say, we're going to get the truth out of this guy. And they're going to get the truth out of him by whipping him. They're going to whip the truth out of Paul. And so they tie him up. They stretch him out. They're cracking the whip, ready to roll. But then verse 25, we have the million-dollar question by Paul. It says, but when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? This is so good, y'all. This is so good. Paul's failed to mention one little key truth to these Roman soldiers, which is that he is a Roman citizen. And it is illegal to whip a Roman citizen. And we can tell by the centurion's response in verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Paul, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, I was born a citizen. A.K.A., how do you like them apples, commander? (laughs) I was born one. I didn't have to purchase it. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. You see, Paul is not only a Jew of Jews. Paul is a Roman citizen with much prestige and legal rights. It's almost as if Paul was genetically and culturally and historically engineered to take a religion that was birthed in Jerusalem throughout the Roman Empire. It's almost as if a sovereign God ordained it to happen that way. The Apostle Paul was a man on a mission. He was enlisted on his way to Damascus. He was trained in Arabia. And he was deployed throughout the known world with one objective, make disciples. And Paul's mission was really just part of a much larger mission, the mission of God, God's redemptive mission, which is a mission that you and I are recipients of, and it's a mission you and I have been called into. It was the mission of redemption for which Jesus came, and is the mission of restoration for which he will come again. And this is really what we celebrate when we come to communion. What's what's fascinating is the fort where Paul was taken and where he was to be whipped is the exact same fort and the exact same place that Jesus was taken when he was whipped. Paul was once again just walking in the footsteps of his Savior. A Savior who left heaven and came to earth. A Savior who took on flesh. A Savior who lived a perfect life and went to the cross where He took on the sins of the world. I've been reading a lot about military this week and, and, and you read about these heroic acts and one of the things you read about that just blows you away is those soldiers who fall on grenades. They absorb the blow so that they can save those around them. And our Savior left heaven to come to earth to fall on the grenade that was meant for us. 
That's what he did. A grenade that was meant for Paul, a sinner, and a grenade that was meant for me and for you, sinners. There was a tragedy this week. I don't know if you read about it at Churchill High School. Uh, senior there, really great young man, 12th in his class, starting football player in the varsity football team, extremely well-liked. He went to sleep and didn't wake up. He died of an enlarged heart. And I have some coaches that I know over at Churchill, so I got a text late one last, late Monday night and was told about it. And they, uh, they called me the next day and asked if I could meet with some of the Churchill football players. And so um, they set something up for Friday night, and we all gathered at Dr. Player's house, who hosted them, and we had about 50 of the Churchill football players. And, and just, just these, these 17-year-olds, these 18-year-olds who have never lost someone before, certainly not someone like Josh, their buddy, just trying to process through this. And so I got up there, and I just started talking to them a little bit, and we walked through first... Thessalonians 4, Paul's message to the church there. He says, do not, he says, it's okay to grieve, but do not grieve as those without hope. And that was my message to them. Josh had a faith. Josh is right where he needs to be. And the question is, how will you respond to the life that God has given you? Because he came on a mission of redemption to save you. And he's going to come again to make all things new. And Josh is going to be a part of that. Will you? Will you be a part of that? We're about to take communion. This is where we celebrate the reality of Christ's coming, and we look forward to the promise of his return. The men are going to come down. They're going to pass out the elements. Please hold on to them and wait. We'll take them together. Communion is for all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And as you handle the elements and as you receive these, I, I ask that you would just go before the Lord. Just go before the Lord and ask Him if there's anything you need to confess. Is that if there's anything you need to come clean with. He is a faithful God. Take this time to go before Him and thank Him and confess to Him. And hold the elements and we'll take them together at the end.
think one of the greatest challenges as a believer is to not become desensitized to the miraculous work of God on our behalf. That there was a grenade that was meant for us and that Jesus left heaven to come to earth to fall onto. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Eat in remembrance of him. The book of Hebrews talks about it. How there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so Jesus didn't say, I'm a Roman citizen, don't whip me. They whipped him. They put nails through him. And they hung him on a cross. The greatest act of love that this world has ever seen. The blood of Christ. Drink in remembrance of him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. With all we've said and heard and processed, the reality is that there are no words that can fully sum up our need for you, how indebted we are to you. God, you are our creator. You are our redeemer. You are our God. You are our savior. You are the Holy One of Israel. And God, thank you for your faithfulness to us even when we are faithless. Thank you for the cross on which our Savior died for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the empty tomb from which he rose. And thank you for the truth that he is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that will have no end. And we thank you that when we say goodbye to loved ones on earth, who know you well, that it is not an eternal goodbye. It is a temporal, I will see you later. And we thank you for the promise of your return. God, you are so good to us. May we live a life worthy of the calling by which we have been called. Thank you for each each story in this room. And how each story has your fingerprints and your signature. God, thank you for the power of a changed life. May we be people who tell a story with our mouths and with our lives and bring glory to you. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for this church. And thank you for each day that you have given us. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have prayer partners up here. They'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday, and we'll see you back next week.